I should never do interviews in the morning. A friend of mine phoned me early and he said, you sound like you've been up all night on a romp and now you're smoking cigarettes. And I said, you know, that's not me. I'm not a cigarette smoker. I am Maureen McGrath and I am the host of the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show, the show where we educate men and women about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Well, this weekend has been just a little bit of rest for me, which is nice because last weekend I spent the whole time at the wellness show in part because. I did a couple of sexual health talks there, in particular around sexual desire and the desire for desire. And sexual desire is a hot topic these days. Sexless marriages is also a hot topic. This company, Anertopia, was giving out so many samples of V-Love, this new sexual desire gel for women. And so many women came by asking about it. We were talking about it. By the end of the weekend, they were asking me, where should I put this? And I was saying, just slather it all over your body for all I care. Paint your bedroom with it. <laughs> anyway, we had lots of fun with it. Um, you can email me at sextalk at cknw.com. If you like to, uh, if you, I can tell you where you can pick up some V-Love and you can try it yourselves as well. No charge for that. Anyway, no charge to improve your sex life. Anyway, great to be here with you tonight. Uh, I have a new blog as well. I think I mentioned that last week. Back to the bedroom slash blog dot ca. So head there. There's going to be lots about sexual desire and relationships and uh, and what that means and the importance of orgasms as well uh, as it relates to sleep in particular and and also in terms of pelvic floor health and bone density. Sex is related to everything, and in fact. Everything is about sex except for sex. Sex is, in fact, about power. And I talk a lot about power in relationships, probably more in my clinical practice than I do here on the radio, but it's really important in a relationship, especially as the world is changing a little bit, uh, at uh, hardly at breakneck speed for women, but a lot of women are have returned to the workplace. Women are, you know, making a little bit of a dent in terms of breaking the glass ceiling. A lot of women are very hardworking and ambitious, and some of a, of us are finally getting the recognition and the compensation that has been long deserved. Uh, but that can be a problem in a relationship, especially when a woman's growing social standing and economic power increases because we place so much value on money these days. But that, when a woman, and I always promote for women to make their own way in life, never depend on anyone else, another man or another woman, for your financial stability. Uh, you always want to have good stability, prosperity, and that will really help in terms of your happiness. But you know, traditionally, men have been the breadwinners, they've been paid more, and they still are paid more, don't get me wrong, but some women do make more money than men. And so this success at work for a woman can sometimes inadvertently fuel a man's insecurity, especially if he has insecurity to begin with, or his baseline is insecurity, or if he's resentful about not maximizing his potential, or perhaps he's lost his job, or he's been out of work. We certainly saw that with the recession. More men than women seem to have lost their jobs because women tend to be in the service industries. And and so those jobs were still needed. And healthcare, for example, is a large percentage of women work in healthcare. But what if you use withholding sex as a powerful weapon in your relationship? And that certainly does happen. I mean, I don't think anybody can say that they never withheld sex in their lives as a as a bargaining chip. Uh, that can make people feel more powerful, but it also can make people, the other person, feel 
uh, more vulnerable. It might make you, the withholder of sex, feel less vulnerable, but you, you've you got to think about what you're doing to the other person. I talk about power quite a bit. I had a patient who was um, feeling powerless with her employer. And power in every relationship, whether it be with your parents or your children or your husband or your wife or your sisters or brothers, power is always there. And there's the, this, this balance of power. But I said to a patient who was having problems with her employer, this is about power and they have power over you at this moment, but you need to make that shift. And she said, well, I'm not about power, you know, and she wasn't willing to even engage or look at it. And a lot of people aren't because denial is such a drug. But if you realize when someone has power over you, i.e. they can make decisions on a home renovation, for example, because they bring in more money or they can make decisions on what kind of car you're going to buy because they are actually the ones that make more money. So the imbalance of power can really lead to a lot of relationship strife. So you want to make sure that you are not doing that. You know, you can be attracted to somebody initially at a relationship because they are smart, because they are brainiacs, because they're intelligent. And that can be really appealing and a big turn on. But that very thing, that intelligence, that knowledge, the impressive work ethic that somebody may have may actually be the be the catalyst to get them the, the top job or vice president or chairman of the board. And that may be a woman. And that might make you feel less than a man if you are in a heterosexual relationship. Or even it can happen, occur in same-sex relationships as well. You can feel like you're not contributing as well, and, and people can get very down on themselves, and that can impact their own career. Your earnings might hit a plateau, and you may feel you're, that you want to be critical of the other person. I hear this a lot, too. Um, people will say to their partners, you think you're so perfect. because, And that's really about the person who feels badly about themselves, they're actually putting it on on that other person. And, and really, because uh, I see so many couples and so many exchanges, and one person, just because they're happy and just because they're carrying on and, you know, they're they're okay with making the money that they are making. They don't feel perfect. It's, it's really about the person who is, who's dissing that kind of, uh, of an insult. And it really is an insult to say to somebody, you think you are, are so perfect, but that can actually lead to, um, a lot of discord in a relationship. So you have to think about, are, are you using sex as a power over somebody? And, or is somebody actually using sex as, power over yourself. You can never change somebody else, but you can change yourself. So if you suspect that your partner is using uh, the withholding of sex, and a lot of women who are withholding sex, they have low desire anyway, so it's kind of a double whammy benefit for them. Um, and it's more common with women that, that they will withhold sex. But if somebody's doing that to you, you've got to realize that can be very toxic in your relationship. And you actually have the power to make that shift back to a little bit more of an even balance. So in other words, addressing that, raising that, I, I feel, I'm curious why uh, you are with, where well, you may not want to use the word withholding sex uh, because that may be uh, defensive or get somebody's hackles up. But um, you may just want to say, you know, I'm curious. Our intimacy seems to be lacking. Um, there seem, and you have to also look at your role in it as well. What is it that you're, are you feeling badly because perhaps you've been unemployed or are you feeling badly because you perhaps gained weight or you're female partner seems to be rocking it in every single aspect of her life. But, you know, you want to look at, see, what is that female partner doing to rock every aspect of her life? And and that takes a lot of hard work and dedication and discipline and exercise and, you know, um, 
holding off on the alcohol, you know, not drinking so much. We can all drown our sorrows in, in the great bottle, which is, can sometimes be the, the best friend and ultimately turn out to be the worst friend for you. So you really want to have a good idea of what kind of marriage makes your dreams come true or what kind of relationship makes your dreams come true. Or you need to be very stable, I think, as a man, a very self-confident, and, and I'm certain you are competent, but you need to... Uh, know thyself and have insight and, and really be happy for somebody else, in particular your wife, if she is making more money uh, than you are at a given time. That may not go on forever because life changes and, and certain things happen. Somebody's reputation can be ruined in a, in a heartbeat. Um, so it's not, and, and there's so much in a marriage, so much to give to, uh, especially if you're raising children or if you have. Um, close family relatives nearby and all of that help and picking up the kids and, and helping around the house is really a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. But but women need to take a look at this and realize if, if they're feeling, um, you know, badly in any way or uh, low, feeling badly that they're earning um, so much money or that Maybe what the real problem is, you have a real yearning to feel taken care of by your man and you're, and you're thinking, oh, I'm making all the money. I'm the one that's, you know, on call working nights or whatever, whatever it is your um, job is about. And, and you feel like, especially if the, your partner, your male partner is acting like a child, sometimes women can feel like they have, you know, one more child in the, in their family. So everybody's got to pull up their pants and, uh, <laughs> and maybe you pull down your pants and that won't be good, especially if you've got, <laughs> outside of your relationship and that you know a man's insecurity can actually cause him to go outside of the relationship and and that will you know really bring deep resentment into into your primary relationship um so you really have to look uh and and you know always be confident be the best you can be and and take a look at this but this is a big issue for women and for men as women make their a better way into the workplace. And, you know, there's lots of campaigns these days um, about having women, you know, be more like men, act more like men in the workplace. And once they start to do that, you know, things are going to change even more. So there's, there's hopefully we're going to get to a uh, much more of a balance. Um, anyway, so if you have any questions about that or want to hear a little bit more about that, feel free to email me, sextalk at cknw.com. And I'm very interested in sex, as you know, but you may not realize I'm just as interested in health. And health and sex are interrelated, and one thing definitely can impact the other. So I was very curious when I saw that the Conference Board of Canada's report stated that British Columbia is the healthiest province in Canada, and in fact it was ranked third in the world. It would appear as though our health minister, Terry Lake, is taking a fair bit of credit for this. But quite honestly, I think a lot of the credit goes to the British Columbians who are active and, and keep their BMIs between 20 and 25 and, and people who advocate for health on behalf of other people as well and, and the research that's done here or that's not being done here because of some of the um, policies we have here in British Columbia. But I think things can still be a whole lot better. But I would like to give some credit to the healthcare practitioners in this province that work every single day, sometimes 12-hour nights, they're on call, they work on holidays and weekends and and with a goal to better serve British Columbians. And I think they've contributed quite a bit to making British Columbia the healthiest province in Canada and one of the healthiest places on this planet to live. So to that end, I have invited Natasha Probanbala to the program. She's a nurse practitioner. Hello, Natasha. 
Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. So nurse practitioners, we have a number of them in British Columbia, and it's a little bit of a new uh, method of to be a healthcare practitioner, a new way, and it hasn't always been widely received, but there are so many benefits for British Columbians to receive the services of a nurse practitioner. So can you tell me a little bit about what a nurse practitioner does? Sure. So there's about 300 of us now in the province, and nurse practitioners are nurses, and then we have quite a few years of experience being nurses, and then we go back and we do our master's, where we learn how to diagnose, prescribe. It's a very focused master's in nursing, um, where we learn how to be nurse practitioners, treatment plans, refer to specialists, um, collaborate with other members of the healthcare team. So that's really, our role really was intended to fill some gaps that were in the system and really try and coordinate care for patients and kind of fill in where we're needed um, and to really increase access for British Columbians was really the big point of our role. And let me just make this clear. You need to be a registered nurse to then go on to be a nurse practitioner. That's the qualification. That is correct. As opposed to a licensed practical nurse, which they are very much nurses as well, but there's a different scope and a different way that they can uh, deliver health care in our system. So That's right. How, 300, that's that's quite a, uh, a, a big number, or a great number of um, nurse practitioners, and that has certainly grown since nurse practitioner programs were introduced in this program, what, about 10 years ago? Yeah, it was in 2005, so yeah, okay. about 10 years ago now. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so where mainly do nurse practitioners work? So the majority of nurse practitioners are family nurse practitioners. There's three different kinds of nurse practitioners in the province. One, the biggest um, group are family, so they take care of patients of all ages. And those nurse practitioners are generally um, in the community doing primary care, so doing much like you would see in a family physician's office. But nurse practitioners often are also in specialized care. So for myself, for example, I work in women's health, and I have a clinic that focuses on sexual health and menopause management and sexually transmitted infection diseases doing PAPs, that kind of stuff. Um, And then other nurse practitioners may focus on HIV care. Some nurse practitioners are in long-term care facilities. And then the other two categories of nurse practitioners are pediatric nurse practitioners that take care of children only, and then adult nurse practitioners, which tend to be more in the acute care setting. So there's also nurse practitioners in the hospital setting on different specialized wards, um, cardiac surgery, for example, cancer care, renal care. So really we do um, fill a wide variety of roles in the province. And if you don't mind my asking, who are, you say you have a clinic, but who actually employs you? Does the hospital employ you? That's correct, yeah. Okay, yep. so BC Women's employs you. And can a nurse practitioner set up office an office much like a general practitioner or a family doctor in this province? No, because the intent of our role is to fill gaps, we're not fee-for-service. So we don't bill per patient that we see, which I really enjoy because the pressure is off for me to see so many patients a day to make an income. And yet I can and I can spend more time with the patients. So I really appreciate that about the role. And that's one of the big reasons why I, I, I love what I do is that I can really do a lot of education, health promotion, disease prevention, all the things that really keep British Columbians healthy. I think that's the kind of model. So we are salaried um, and we have to work within 
a health authority or within an office to be employed. All different healthcare practitioners in this province work within a scope of practice set out by their regulatory body, like the College of Registered Nurses of British Columbia, for example. So um, what is the difference between a family doctor and a nurse practitioner? What is the difference in scope of practice? I realize that, that you're not billable, uh, number one, yeah. Uh, yeah. or fee for service, but in terms of delivering care, what, what is it that you can't do that a, that a general yeah. practitioner or GP can do? Yeah, that's a great question. So there is a lot of crossover, and that's sometimes a bit of a confusing thing, I think, for the public about nurse practitioners. We overlap with family physicians. We overlap with nurses. We overlap with social work. Like, we really understand the system and have a lot of overlapping roles. So there are some things we can't do that are not within our scope of practice. For instance, order narcotics. Um, we can't do in some certain medications. There's certain tests that we can't order. So there's a few things that we can't do. And I would say, you know, I often refer to um, family physicians when the, the patients just get very medically complex. And, you know, nurse practitioners in this province are big believers of just allowing all healthcare practitioners to work to full scope such that GPs can do what they're trained to do, nurse practitioners, LPNs, I know that you mentioned them as well, that everybody really works together um, and that everyone has something to offer to the team is really what we've been advocating. And have you been um, well accepted by general practitioners and, and other family doctors? We have. The, the, the family doctors that we work with understand the role and really have an appreciation for what we provide the team and that it's not about replacing, it's not about taking over, it's having a bit of overlap appreciating each other's expertise and, and but really does the benefiting pro- the patient. Does the province appreciate what you do? I mean, <laughs> so I know that yeah. <laughs> I know that a lot of nurse practitioners have a difficult time finding employment. And it's a, it's actually a more cost-effective and efficient way to deliver health care in many ways. And so I think that's one of the big negatives is some nurse practitioners can't get jobs as nurse practitioners. That's the one question I wanted to ask for you. I have another one afterward. Go ahead. One of the big problems is a lot of the jobs that are posted for nurse practitioners currently are very specialized. And nurse practitioners, you know, coming right out of their master's, you know, they may may have worked a couple of years as a nurse before that. They're uncomfortable, um, as they should be, in terms of taking on that kind of specialty. So we're really advocating for roles for nurse practitioners that are in general primary care offices where they can learn and grow um, and be mentored as well by other senior nurse practitioners mm-hmm. or by family physicians. And and the um, other thing yeah. hospitals are doing is they are having hospitalists now on, on staff. Correct. So hospitalists are staying at the hospital. They're on call They to attend to the higher acuity that we're seeing in our acute care hospitals today. And and they're salaried. Yep. So that, and there, yeah, again, there is an overlap between what we do and what hospitalists do. But I would say, especially in the acute care setting, of course, but what I would say is that because we come from a nursing background, we just look at things differently. So again, it's about knowing what the patient's needs are and what the right healthcare professional is for that patient. Absolutely. And and yeah. you say you can't prescribe narcotics, but what, what can you prescribe? Antibiotics? Yeah, everything. Sedative? Uh, that would yeah. fall under. A sedative you can? So is yeah. it a control three substance you can't prescribe? 
That's correct. And that's going to change. We're thinking that that's going to change this year. They're just working on the legislation around that. Well, the state of New York has just equalized what family doctors and nurse practitioners can do. And there's been huge uproar over there. They're actually uh, starting a whole fear mongering campaign against this. But uh, yeah, I think we're going to see healthcare change over time. It's going to be more focused on prevention and education and health promotion. And, And thank you so much for all the fine work that you do. And thanks for joining me this evening on the program. Thank you, Maureen. I really appreciate it. That was Natasha Prodembala. She is a nurse practitioner here in this province. She works arduously every day to improve the health of British Columbians, and that's why we are top in the world. One of the hot topics these days seems to be sexless marriages, and that is tied to sexual desire. We often think that is more women who have sexual desire. That may or may not be the case, but it is still a problem. Men experience low sexual desire as well. According to the research, not so much. About 20% of men experience low sexual desire, and about 45 to 50% of women experience low sexual desire, depending on their station in life. But sexual desire is very important in terms of your relationship, especially as it relates to sexual satisfaction, and is a major contributor to your quality of life. Pleasure derived from sex is really a crucial factor in preserving your youth because sex releases endorphins, which are the natural feel-good chemicals. When do we feel good? We feel the best when we're young. It's also a natural painkiller. It eases anxiety and aids with sleep. If somebody could bottle this, they would be a billionaire, honestly, especially because it improves the elasticity of your skin. And if you notice, people who are having more great sex have fewer wrinkles. Well, if you know anyone that's having more great sex anyway. But I see people who are having great sex, and I can see their youthful spirit, um, you know, coming coming through their skin because it's about blood flow and blood flow increases to the cheeks and to the face and, and they just have a bit more uh, zip in their step. I get a, a very common question that's asked of me is when do people stop having sex? And there's a stereotype that an elderly person doesn't have sex. And in fact, when they get their pension and their bus pass, they stop having sex. And that's simply not true. As I said, sex is the fountain of youth. And in fact, it is better and much less expensive than Botox. So, you know, I see all these people trying to make themselves look youthful with the trout lips and the big cheeks and the pumping themselves up in their face all over the place. And they look fake and they look terrible. And and they may have the um, enlarged breasts and they're doing everything on their body on the outside to make them look more appealing. And some of these people I actually see, and they, they don't come to me for that, but I, you can tell when somebody's had uh, some work done. And, but they're, they've got a lot of pain on the inside, and, and they're not necessarily sexually active. It's not to say that everybody that's ever done Botox is not having sex. I don't mean that in that way, but it's certainly people focus so much on the outside when I think we really need to place the focus on the inside and what a person is like on the inside. And sexual desire really relates to how you feel as a sexual being. It's about being attracted to somebody physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You want to want to have sex. You want to feel like having sex. And you have to take care of yourself in every way to feel like having sex. It's it's being mindful about sex. It's having sex on the front burner and not the back burner of your mind. Sexual tension is something that is we can't even account for, but you can see it between two people that maybe never even have met yet. Or, or But when you see it between two people, it might happen by chance, 
Um, but so sometimes there's just this sexual tension between two people. They may be with other people for whatever reason, but when they see each other, you can feel that sexual tension. You can cut it with a knife, and that will fuel desire as well. To want to have sex, I think a contributing factor to wanting to desire sex is to self-stimulate and masturbate. Those are two very important uh, aspects of life. Not everybody does that, but about 75, 80% of people do. Uh, that's another very common question that I get. How much is too much masturbation? I get it from guys a lot. And um, maybe they're sending me some other secret message. But nonetheless, I pretty much say as long as it's not impacting your life, you're able to go to work, you're able to maintain your relationships, then, you know, I can't really put a number on it. Uh, it's very healthy. Again, it releases endorphins and um, it'll help you. Uh, with pain. It'll help you with sleep. It'll help you look younger. So uh, masturbation is absolutely fine. I was demonstrating last weekend um, not f- uh, the, the false vagina, which is basically a masturbation sleeve um, for people. And it's the number one product that is sold on my website, www.backtothebedroom.ca, because so many people are not partnered. So it's even more important that you tend to your own sexual health needs. I also feel it's important that people understand what's happened to their bodies during um, sex. And to that end, there is the sexual response cycle, which was developed many, many decades ago by Masters and Johnson. And the traditional model is desire first. So that means you look at somebody and you're attracted to them and you have desire. And we see that in at the beginning of a relationship, in a new relationship. And that's why a lot of people who might be married and then they sneak outside of their relationship and they feel they they don't have the desire in their relationship any longer, but they have it outside of the relationship when they meet somebody new. And so they have this desire and they fantasize about this new person and and they get all, the next step is arousal and then plateau for women and then orgasm and then resolution or a refractory period for men because men need to have breaks in between having sex. And when you're 18, you know, you need like five seconds in between. And when you're 88, you need like five, maybe five years if you've got that much. No, it's just longer as uh, as people get older. So even somebody in their, in their 40s may not be able to have sex two or three times in a row in the same day uh, like they could have when they were 18. Uh, some might be able to anyway, good for you, but, uh, but it definitely does change. Some people don't even realize that their erections change as they age because it's such a gradual process and they think, oh, I'm fine, I'm the same as I was at 18 or 19 or 20, but no, you're definitely not. Um, I'm not going to check that for you though, you, you know, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, sexual desire is really a motivational state and it's that interest or need or drive to seek out or engage in sexual activities. And it's really a very important aspect of a woman's sexuality. It's so sad. I know that it's variable for women, depends on life circumstances, but I hear so often, this is probably the most common thing I hear from women who come to see me in my practice, and I see 40 or 50 women a week. So I see a number of women a week, plus I speak to women at events and conferences and presentations that I give, and I hear from them, if I never have sex again, it will be too soon. Uh, That's one one answer or, um, you know, they'll, I'll ask them if they're sexually active and they'll tell me that they're married and I'll say, well, that means no to me. Um, but they'll say, yeah, it's not an important part of the relationship, but you know, you really want to speak to the partner in that relationship because it's, uh, it's not fair to take away somebody's sexual health rights or to, to cut them off. So shall we say no pun intended. Um, but the other terms for sexual desire, libido, sexual attraction, lust, um, all, all very important. And if you've, you can maintain that in a relationship, especially a longer-term relationship, 
uh, that's fantastic. But there's some physiological changes that occur. Um, excitement and arousal where your muscle tension increases, your heart rate quickens, the breathing's accelerated, your skin may become flushed, the nipples become hardened or erect. Um, and you get the blood flow that increases to a woman's clitoris and her labia, vaginal lubrication begins. And, and that's really important that women remain lubricated and, and that can happen or that can decrease as estrogen receptors decrease in the urogenital tract or in the vagina as women age or after they've had a baby. Um, so all of these physiological responses like like the breast becoming fuller and the vaginal wall swelling are really important because then that leads to the orgasm, which is the sudden discharge of that accumulated sexual tension. And that happens during the female sexual response cycle. Very important. So many people feel that an orgasm is not important. Women will say that and women will tell other women that it's not important. And I beg to differ. It is absolutely vital for a satisfying sexual event. I'm getting clinical here that you experience orgasm. Orgasm. Only about one-third of women report ever having experienced orgasm. Some women don't know what it is. We don't share this. This is such vital information for one woman to share to another and to explain what it's like and explain what it feels like. And uh, and it's it's very much tied to how how well you sleep and, and your stress levels. And it's very, very important that excitement, that swelling and that sexual climax, otherwise known as the orgasm. And then afterward, the rhythmic contractions occur. And so that can be a sign that you know, but knowing your body, understanding what happens and especially understanding what happens during sex and during orgasms is is very important. Orgasms, of course, vary in intensity and women vary in the frequency of their orgasms as well. And the, the amount of stimulation required for women to orgasm can can vary as well. So orgasms may change with medical conditions, medications, and age, but they don't have to. It's something that you need to pay really good attention to. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm on that bit of a bandwagon this year. So the key message here is having an orgasm is vital, ladies. Okay, we'll talk more about that in the in this year during this year as well on my blog www.backtothebedroom/blog.ca. I really love when you email me because I learn from you and learn what's important for you to learn about. And uh, after all, we are all in this together. So I wanted to read a couple of emails. For you that uh, that you've sent, and, and hopefully I think these will help other people as well. So that's the other benefit of the email. So you can email me anytime at sextalk at cknw.com. It's private and confidential, and I will not use your name or anything. Uh, so here's this first one. Hi, Maureen. At the end of your show this past Sunday night, you mentioned two personal moisturizers for vaginal dryness. One I've heard you talk about before, but the other one was new to me. Would you please let me know what they are again with the correct spelling and let me know where to buy them as I've never seen anything like this and I'm hoping it will help. I talk a lot about vaginal dryness because vaginal dryness is the hallmark symptom of a condition called vaginal atrophy. It affects 49% of postmenopausal women. It can also happen in women as young as age 31 and it also associated with perimenopause, the years leading up to menopause. So if you're dry in your vagina, uh, you're not going to want to have sex. A lot of women report that it feels like sandpaper is scraping down there. Uh, they have no idea what happened. It can happen overnight or it can be gradual over time. They're embarrassed about it. They don't want to talk to their partners or their doctors about it. One patient 
I had was told by her doctor because she'd lost a lot of weight. That's why she had vaginal dryness. Completely and simply untrue. It is a real condition, a real medical condition, and the only one of menopause that doesn't get better. Hot flashes and night sweats will get better, and some of the other symptoms associated with menopause, they'll get better. Menopause will last. Some of the new research is out that it will last not five years, but seven and a half years, and for some women, up to 14 years. So, But vaginal dryness or vaginal atrophy will not go away. It needs to be treated. And it needs to be treated with personal moisturizers. And the personal moisturizers that I mentioned on the air in the past were Repagyn, R-E-P-A-G-Y-N, which is an ovule. These are hormone, this is hormone-free. It's a hormone-free treatment option. It's Repagyn, R-E-P-A-G-Y-N. It's an ovule that's inserted into the vagina. You take it daily for a week and then twice a week for the rest of your life because if you don't then the condition will return and within two or three months which is when it optimizes you will feel so much better down there if you will uh, there's more information on this on my blog www.backtothebedroom.blog.ca you can also try Dr. U Aqua which is a personal moisturizer that was developed by a physician that has some tea tree oil in it anyway it'll help you feel fresh and, and again you use that a couple of times a week as well I have another email to read to you from John, who had some issues. He had been emailing me in the past about his erectile dysfunction. So here he writes in follow-up. Hi again, Maureen. I listened to your next few shows to get a better understanding of what may affect my situation. This started slowly over the last 10 years or so, I would guess. I remember times with the ex where I just couldn't get it done. Now I'm with a woman who is more attractive in so many ways, so it should not be that. I do realize this is not a cut-and-dry situation, and there are many, many factors that could be part of my problem. Health-wise, I'm pretty good for 55, 5'8", 165 pounds with no real issues or health problems. I do have some joint pain starting, but it is very little, and I never take pills for headaches as I don't get any. I have one condition, but I have not found anything that links herpes to erectile dysfunction or the Valtrex I take to protect the girlfriend. It's now five years of suppressive therapy. I've had herpes for 25 years and used to run Vancouver Help. I have a lower sex drive at times, and this comes and goes over a few weeks to a month. It is not quite like a traffic light, but I think it takes a week or so to get it to come back. I can tell by my interest in my Tumblr blog. Yes, yes, this is a sex blog, but not the super dirty hard porn stuff, just nice dirty old man stuff. Is there such a thing as nice dirty old man stuff? Anyway, I have erectile dysfunction at times as well, and they mostly correlate with the times of low sex drive. You know, when I read that last statement, I would say it could be most of the time. Now, as I don't take many chances now, if you want some fun, you may as well make sure you get it. Still, I only take a quarter of a pill. I know there are times that it works just like it used to. Psychological arousal is also key, and this is a bit of a problem. I'm not the kind of guy who can just find a woman and go at it. I need a little want from her. Well, a bit more want, really. Here the girlfriend could help out some by learning to be a bit more vocal. That is a question that I have as well. Do you have a link to something like the top 10 reasons to talk dirty to your partner? I've told her, but can't seem to convince her it is seriously needed. Back to my you-know-what. Um, you talked about vascular issues, and I would like to know more about that. If you have any leads on anything to read, last but not least, you said in one show that you would talk about foods that you eat. I would still like to hear that list, please. 
Okay, so there's lots of questions in here and lots of things to address. The psychological arousal is one thing. Yes, psychological arousal is important, especially if you're taking something like, I'm assuming he's taking one of the PD-5 inhibitors when he says he takes a quarter of a pill. That may actually not be enough if he is psychologically aroused. Um, Talking dirty can be a big turn-on for people. Actually, more women talk dirty than men, so I'm not sure why... He's having a problem with his um, with his lady. I did write an article for a magazine about talking dirty. You can Google that a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, I have no problem with that. Um, also, the weight issue. You want to check your BMI, uh, body mass index. And so at 5'8 and 165 pounds, I suspect he might be a little bit overweight. So you weight is the number one issue for blood flow, and, and that can relate to erectile dysfunction as well. Um, So you can read that. The vascular issues, the testosterone is another issue, especially where he mentioned low sexual desire and a little bit of fatigue. So I would recommend getting a testosterone level checked as well because that can decrease as men age. So there's lots in there. If you would like, uh, you can go onto my website, www.backtothebedroom.ca for those foods that are high in zinc and other Um, nutrients and vitamins that will help to increase blood flow like oysters and spinach and that kind of thing. So I will list that on my website, www.backtothebedroom.ca. And I would definitely speak to uh, my physician, if I were you, um, about some of the issues that you're having. They're they're not uncommon issues for men as they age. Um, You're a young guy to call yourself a dirty old man. Anyway, um, (laughs) but... uh, it's, you know, we, we have a lot of shame around sex and, and around sexuality, and it's important that uh, you feel good about yourself in a sexual way and that you feel good about your body and um, that kind of thing because that can also definitely lead to um, less of a, of a satisfying experience in the bedroom. Anyway, thank you so much for your email. And uh, so email me anytime, sextalk at cknw.com, and I will try to address your sexual health and relationship and other health issues the best that I can. Uh, you know, up for next week's program, I do talk a lot about uh, sexual desire, and we see that decreasing in longer-term relationships in particular and many other reasons as well. So I realize that the romantic love may end, but that romantic love is followed by committed love, especially if it is a healthy relationship. Romantic love, as we know, is linked with feelings of euphoria and dependence and anxiety, great anxiety, nervousness and obsessiveness and mindfulness, thinking about this person and this love all the time. But because of a particular little-known hormone in the brain, PEA, this only lasts about a year, which is biologically about enough time to reproduce, to have a baby. So the committed love stage begins pretty shortly after you meet that absolutely right and perfect one, supposedly. So physiologically, the transition is linked to elevated neurotrophin protein levels in these newly formed couples. So I'm going to be addressing that as well because this is a big issue, especially as it relates to one of the topics that is near and dear to my heart, sexual desire. So what are some of the things committed couples can do to keep that sexual desire on the up and up. What does it take? Some of the researchers at UBC have said it takes novelty. So adding, you know, do we add handcuffs to the bedroom? Uh, How much 
role does matching lingerie, what does that do for a guy? And uh, what are some of the sex toys that might comfortably be introduced into a relationship just to keep that spark going and to keep that interest uh, very high? Anyway, so it'll be fun to talk about that and maybe uh, give you an idea of uh, how to look at your relationship a little bit differently and because uh, you want to make it fun for everybody in the relationship. There might be two, there might be three. Who knows? Sometimes there's four, five, and six these days. But anyway, we'll be talking about that. You can always go to my website for further information, www.backtothebedroom.ca. My new blog, www.backtothebedroom.ca. Follow me on Twitter, at back the number two, the bedroom. If you'd like me to send you some V-love, Pop me an email, sextalk at cknw.com. I'd love to hear what you think about it. Does it increase your sexual desire? And always remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. Until next week, have a sexually healthy week. I am Maureen McGrath, and you have been listening once again to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show.